Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lost in Science Summer Series. My name is Claire and this week on Lost in Science we um, are reaching back into the archives of 2023, pulling out some of our favourite stories and interviews and bringing them back to you so you can have another little listen. Maybe you missed out on them last year or maybe you just need a little bit more science in your summer. First up, we have an interview with microbiologist Dee Carter, who has done some incredible research on a very unlikely candidate in the search for new antibiotics, the honeypot ant. Now, you may recognize these ants. They're the ones that have the huge butts that store the honey. They're incredible little creatures. And Dee and her team have done this new research that has shown the discovery of a few new molecules that show antibacterial and antifungal traits. And also this week, we're reaching back into the archives with Chris, who's looking at some new medical research into muscular dystrophy and gene therapy. Uh, This is gene therapy that's currently being trialed in New South Wales on some young children who are affected by this muscular dystrophy. So Chris is taking a look at the treatment. Um, it's going to give you a bit of a uh, bit of an insight into what it is and some of the major challenges there as well. So there you have it. Stay with us for our summer series and on with the show. that honey has potent antimicrobial activity maybe you've seen it sold as manuka honey or raw honey well new research recently published reveals that there is actually astonishing medicinal value in honey produced by another more unexpected insect the honeypot ant And in a world where antibiotic resistance looms large around the corner, this ant could offer a new hope and a new solution. To speak to us about this research is one of the authors of the recently published paper, Dee Carter, Professor of Microbiology at the University of Sydney. Dee, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you very much. So these honey ants, how... And why do they produce this incredible honey? So I guess the first thing to bear in mind is that the way the honey is produced and stored is completely different to 
bees. Mm -hmm. So these ants actually produce and store this honey in their own bodies. They live in a pretty large nest underground. And within this nest, certain members are designated as what we call repletes. And these repletes get fed the nectar and the other things that the other ants, the worker ants and the colony forage. And this goes into their abdomens and their abdomens swell up with this golden honey-like substance until they reach the size of sort of a smallish grape. So these ants look incredible. They've got little ant bodies at the front, normal little ant bodies, and then this amazing swollen abdomen full of golden liquid at at their rear. So does that mean they immobilized? Can they, they are sort of... basic, yeah, they they really can't move around much. Um, and in their nest, they basically cling to the ceiling of these small ch- chambers in which the repletes live. So they live sort of separate from the rest of the colony in these chambers. Wow. That, so they're, they're sort of like um, living honeycomb. Yes, that's right. Yes. And in times of scarcity, then the workers will stroke their antenna and the ants will cough up the honey and feed it back to them. So they are basically a living pantry for the colony. Oh, my God. Life never (laughs) ceases to amaze me. That is incredible. (laughs) That is Um, really incredible. (laughs) Yeah. So what initially motivated you to undertake uh, this research on honey ant honey? So my group has had a sort of an ongoing interest in honeybee ant, uh, sorry, honeybee honey for a long time. It's not the major thrust of the lab, but it's been a sort of a side interest that we've had going along for many years, um, particularly manuka honey and, but more recently, the sort of non-manuka bee honeys as well. Um, and some years ago, actually, Andrew Dong, who's the, the lead author on this paper, he approached me and he's um, a former food science student and he was really interested in indigenous foods. And so he um, said, look, I'm really interested in this honey pot and honey. Do you think we could test it in your lab? And I said, yeah, sure, just get us the ants. But it took Andrew a while to then source the ants. And he had to travel out to um, Western Australia and um, join a tour that's there, which is specifically for digging for these ants run by Indigenous people. So then he was able to bring these ants back and then we were able to test the honey. Brilliant. And um, you've found that this honey ant honey, it has some quite interesting, potentially unexpected antimicrobial activity. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Sure. So, yeah, it's very interesting because in contrast to bee honey, uh, which tends to be pretty broadly active. So if it affects one bacterial species, it'll probably affect a whole range of them. Uh, whereas this honey was very specific. So it really affected Staphylococcus aureus, which you might have heard of as golden staph. Um, but other bacterial pathogens didn't seem to affect at all. So it seems to be much more of a specific kind of activity. And it was also pretty active against certain species of, of uh, fungi, so certain mm. yeasts and molds as well. So, yeah, it seems like it's perhaps um, geared up to be active against certain things but not others and perhaps this relates to the ant environment because they don't necessarily want to kill all the bacteria and fungi in their environment they might have some that they like to to keep going Uh, so it's sort of less broad spectrum it's not sort of like blanket kill everything it's much more selective yeah and and just to I guess rewind a little bit and get my head straight about 
I guess, the evolutionary reason of why insects like honeybees and, of course, the honey ant, why there's a need to have this sort of antimicrobial function in their honey in the first place. Yeah, and I think that's that's really the crux of it is, you know, what is the evolution of this? And clearly, if you're making a sticky, lovely substance like honey, um, which could be great food for fungi and bacteria, especially if it gets a bit diluted, because normally it's so sticky and sweet um, that things can't grow in it. Mm. It's just got it's got too much sugar in it. It's like but a natural gets- natural preservative type thing. Yeah, that's right. But if it gets a bit diluted and gets spread around the colony, you can imagine that it could easily be overrun by mm. particularly fast-growing moles um, that might really damage the, the nest and also potentially infect the ants or bees. Uh, so I think evolution has, has come up with this system, but perhaps evolution also in the case of the ants has also come up with a way of making sure that it can kill certain fungi and and bacteria but not everything just so mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily killing off everything in the environment as a microbiologist you're looking at i guess you know what is contained within the honey that is the actual sort of like quantifiable antimicrobial component what did you come up with yeah, so it looks to us like it's a different mechanism of activity to bee honey. So bee honey, we know quite a bit about what causes the activity there. Um, but this didn't seem to be the same. It didn't have the same properties that we would expect from the particular antimicrobials that we would see in bee honey. Um, and in particular, what we found was when we heated it, um, the activity was largely lost. So we think it's probably something like a protein or a peptide potentially derived from the ant itself. So uh, in bee honey, a lot of the activity comes from the nectar that the, that the bees forage on. Certain things also can come from the bee, um, but we think in the ant honey, it's most likely to be coming from the ant. But we don't know for sure, so uh, we haven't done the tests yet, and we haven't we haven't been able because we just don't have much of this honey to actually do any chemical sort of refined chemical tests to try and extract out what might be active. Um, but we're hoping that we might be able to do that in the future. Is this something I guess you know, looking to the future as um, as you must be? Um, is this something that you think? you know, could have a place in our fight against antibiotic resistance in the future? Yeah, well, we would hope so. Um, Obviously, you would never be able to grow these ants in numbers. This is not an an organism you can domesticate. And anyway, the amount of honey that's produced is tiny. Um, But what we could do, if we we can understand what the property is of this honey that's making it antimicrobial, perhaps we can use that as a lead compound Mm. to synthesize something that's similar Mm. Um, but it's certainly interesting in the sense that it takes us into a a slightly different direction to most antimicrobials um, and that could be really useful Mm. Uh, there must be something um, incredibly exciting about that your research group was collaborating with indigenous communities um, who traditionally use the honey ant um, in cultural and medicinal practices and have a lot of knowledge around the honey ant. So can you tell us a little bit more about how the research was informed by Indigenous knowledge and um, uh, and collaboration with the knowledge holders? Yeah, so the reason Andrew was interested in the honey pot 
and honey was that there was evidence that Indigenous people had been using it in terms of for sore throats and infections and cuts and grazes as well. So it did seem that, in fact, it was being used already by the Indigenous people. Um, now, clearly, they they dig for these ants and, and a lot of the pleasure that they derive from them is simply because it tastes good, you know, and it is actually, I haven't tasted it myself, but everybody who has says it's, it's very nice. It's not quite as sweet as honey. It's a bit more tart. Um, mm. But it's also very culturally significant. So digging for the ants is something that people do in groups and it's sort of a, you know, a really um, pleasant way to spend the day, just digging for them, finding them. Um, but they're also very, they're very aware of the sustainability of it. So they don't dig up entire nests. They just take a few um, ants at a time and then put it back together as best they can to make sure that it's sustainable and it's still there for future generations. So you mentioned a little bit about future research. What are the next steps for this research for you sort of going forward? So that really will depend on being able to source more ants if we can. Um, we have been offered some more from other Indigenous groups. So we might end up with enough that would allow us then to uh, give some honey to chemists um, and they could help us determine exactly what is the the magic active ingredient in that honey. It's incredibly fascinating research to think about um, these replete ants, you know, <laughs> potentially having life-changing consequences for um, humans in the future. Um, Dee Carter, thank you so much for joining us today um, and talking Pleasure. about the little ant that could, you know, hold the power to combat mm -hmm. some big bugs. Um, so best of luck with the future of the research and I'm looking forward to hearing more. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk about it. Congratulations on your discovery, which may well prove to be among the most significant in the history of science. I cannot accept half-baked theories that sell newspapers. I'm, I'm a scientist. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? A most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild... Transylvania. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about gene therapy treatments, particularly for a disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Now, as I said, there's been some developments on this recently. Uh, there is a particular treatment that is essentially up for approval in the United States by their Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And it's uh, they were initially planning to reject it, but the interest in it was so high that they've held a public hearing that there's been a narrow vote by some independent advisors to, um, to recommend that they approve it. Um, as we're talking, I don't know if it has been formally approved or not, but it just kind of shows that yeah they clearly they were not able to make a definitive decision and there's a lot of controversy around whether this the benefits outweigh the the risks for this particular treatment so i thought i'd have a bit of a look at what the treatment is and uh yeah and how it works and what the challenges are um so yeah muscular dystrophy um is essentially the type of uh disorder affects the nerves and muscles and essentially it affects the muscle strength and and size of muscles and duchenne muscular dystrophy is its most common type that is it is a genetic disorder it affects about 
one in 3,500 3, boys. Notably, it's very rare in girls because it is, um, it's linked to the X chromosome. Uh, and it's a recessive uh, condition. So it's basically, yeah, boys have right. two copies of the gene. Yeah. Girls, girls have so two one copies. Copy of them. Yeah, girls, girls have two copies. Have two copies. So yeah, it is um it is a progressive disease or a degenerative disease if you want to look at it that way. Um so it affects all the muscles in the body, including the muscles that hold the spine straight and also the muscles that are needed for breathing. Children who have this condition generally they lose the ability to walk by about twelve years of age. Um, and essentially uh, using a wheelchair after that age. And um, thank you for the Royal Children's Hospital fact sheet for supplying me with all this information. So, yeah, that is, that's what it is. And as I said, it is a genetic condition um, linked to the X chromosome, and it's a, it's a mutation in a, a, a gene for a protein called dystrophin. And dystrophin is a protein that's in the muscle the, the cell membranes in muscle fibers. And essentially it acts, it's been described as a bit like a shock absorber type of thing. It helps to essentially strengthen the muscles and helps them, I guess, um, resist injury. So without this dystrophin protein, then, yeah, the muscles get progressively damaged through use and hence why they, they wear away and why you get this, um, yeah, this degeneration or the, the muscular dystrophy, as the name suggests. So the fact that it is just kind of one gene uh, for one protein um, makes it and it would sound like it makes an excellent target for a gene therapy to attack this particular uh, problem. Yeah, it seems pretty straightforward if you've got a single, I mean, a single protein is coded for usually by a single gene. So yeah, absolutely. Surely you could just, you just fix the gene, you fix the protein, problem yeah. solved, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were a few practical issues with this. And the first one is, um, I guess, not so much to record to the, to the treatment, but to the actual problem itself. Um, the, the gene that codes for dystrophin, the DMD gene, um, happens to be the largest known human gene. Um, it has 2.4 megabases and it covers 0.08% um, of the entire human genome. So it is wow. huge. Point oh eight percent. That is a massive. Yeah. I yeah. mean, when you when you think about how big the human genome is, that is that's quite large. Yeah, yeah. So delivering such a large gene clearly is going to be an issue. Um, and is that it, this is the only thing it does as well? Is that is that it doesn't um, have any other function? As far as I know, yeah. I mean, it's quite an important function, as we've seen. Um, yeah, like if obviously you're it, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is, fortunately, there is a way around that particular problem. There was, um, there was a case, there was an older man who had um, half the protein missing, roughly half the protein missing, um, and he had mild muscular dystrophy. So they did some experiments, basically, and figured that you could have a miniature version of this protein dystrophin that essentially would help alleviate the most of the problem. So it doesn't, it's not a full cure, I guess you could say, because mm. um, it's not the full protein, but it's, um, it gets you over the, 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 the main harm of it. And this um, miniature dystrophin, or micro dystrophin, as it's often called, is small enough to pack into a virus, um, they use things called adeno-associated viruses. And, yeah, and they give patients this virus containing this gene from microdystrophin. Uh, and they give a huge amount. So it's typically like 10 to the, 14, 10 to the power of 14 
of these viruses um, per kilogram of body weight. So it's a large amount of virus because essentially you're wanting to get all the muscle cells, I suppose, mm. to have this particular gene in them. So And it does seem to have, it does provide a lot of benefit having this, um, yeah, this microdystrophin genes in the body. But it's again, it's not a full cure. I and mean, there's some problems that come along with it. Um, one of the problems is that it's not a permanent permanent fix because what you're doing is you're introducing essentially a viral genome into the cells. It's not doesn't become part of the cell's uh, nucleus or the cell's genome. So, and particularly when new muscle cells are created from stem cells, then they don't generally have this um, this virus uh, DNA in them. And so essentially the cells that you've injected are replaced. Um, so over time as the, as the cells regenerate. So it's not, a, it's not a permanent thing in that. And it's also very then very difficult to give the treatment again because the fact that it's delivered by a virus, the mm. body builds up immunity to the virus. And so next time you give the injection, the body fights the infection. Right, so it's not a long-term solution. No, not at all a long-term solution. It's kind of a one-off thing, really, mm. in that sense. I guess not only does the body generally, pe- people build uh, immunity to this particular virus, but it can actually go wrong in the process of delivering things by the viruses. Um, there have been patients who have, you know, who've been testing this, involved in the test for this um, this treatment, who have died, believed to be from the, the effects of the, the virus that they're given. Um, so it's been suspected or implicated at least 11 deaths um, of for gene therapy. Um, I think maybe only two of those for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but right. still, it's um, it shows there's actual it's a risk there, particularly when um, if you're trying to maybe get around this issue of then the body getting immunity. Sometimes it's being proposed that they could give say immune suppressing drugs, mm-hmm. but then you had the risk of the infection causing yeah. a problem. Is it more to do with the viral vector being the delivery mechanism, or is there is there some inherent problem with the with the gene therapy, no, it seems to be the virus itself is the problem. It attacks, okay. it attacks, yeah, other parts of the um, of the the body and the heart and that, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's the virus itself that is the problem. Um, so I'll get into some some ideas for getting around that issue as well. But look, it is like I said, it's looking like it could still be approved in the United States. This particular um, this particular therapy. I had a look and see what the situation is, is in Australia. The um, the company who's developed it is called Sepetra, and they have a collaboration with the pharmaceutical company Roche for uh, I guess bringing this to Australia. That was announced a couple of years ago. Um, I can't yet find that they submitted anything for approval here in Australia, but presumably that will happen after all the data has gone through in the States. We often follow those sort of things. I can't also find much indication whether the results have been formally published in journals or what the situation is with that. Um, it's also interesting that other um, firms are looking at this. Pfizer apparently is working on a treatment that sounds very similar to Sepetra's. Um, they are actually running a trial with um, the first sites are set up in Australia. So there actually are Australian patients who are uh, trialing this gene therapy for the, the Pfizer version of it. So it is, even though it's not approved for use here, it is, I guess, being used in at least in the experimental stages. 
but as I said, it's not it's not a long term issue. There are multiple problems with this. Um, there are some plans, like I said, for getting around it. Um, one is the idea that you could use uh, the the gene editing tool CRISPR, which I know we've talked a lot about on this on this show. Um, CRISPR is a it's a technique derived from certain bacteria that allow you to snip out bits of genes and replace them mm. with um, bits of DNA and replace them with um, the DNA you want. And the idea here would be that you don't necessarily have to bring in the, I guess, the full DMD gene for dystrophin. You basically just fix the broken bit for the mutation. So you're only bringing in a small amount of of say um rna or dna to, to do the fixing uh, you don't have to bring in the whole enormous gene um so and if, for that you could potentially use a similar techniques that have been used for the covid vaccines which delivered uh the M- messenger rna through lipid bubbles rather than through uh, lipid nanoparticles essentially rather than through a, a viral vector so it's a bit safer in that sense right yeah um, so yeah, that's, that's a possibility um, because it kind of a it sounds like a, a neater approach in some ways. But um, there are still immune issues there um, because this because CRISPR comes from um, a bacterial source. Then the it's essentially is still foreign DNA that you're introducing or foreign uh, genes that you're introducing into the cells, and then the cells themselves can then be targeted by the immune system because suddenly they look like they're infected, which they are infected, essentially. Um, and this problem has been seen in the laboratory and some of the um, the animals that they've been testing this on. Um, so there are some practical issues, even with that kind of neater sounding approach. So like I said, I want to tell this story because I think it is a good example of how something that sounds really, really smart and a fairly simple fix of something has a lot of practical issues. I guess the the good news here, though, is that we are actually seeing these therapies being used, potentially being approved, even though they have these shortcomings. Um, there are these practical issues, and I guess what we can hope is that the solutions we found for the practical problems, and that you know, in the near future, we'll be seeing these therapies become a reality for multiple genetic disorders. The process is already in place; it's just a matter of time until. The difficulties are ironed out. we have time for on another episode of lost in science on our summer series thanks for sticking around lost in science is recorded on the lands of the cooler nations and broadcast across australia on the community radio network 
with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, or Facebook, or just tune in wherever you find us next week when Kat, Stu, Chris and Claire get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.